Paul said in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, that gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. The message of the gospel to everyone that believeth. For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. The good news. That's this book we have that we're looking into. It's all about the gospel. All about the person of the gospel and the work of the gospel. I like what I heard one preacher say. I've not heard any bad news since I've heard the good news. And that is really so true. For we know that all things work together for good for them that love God and those that are the called according to his purpose. Uh, those whom God has elected, those whom he has redeemed, those sinners saved by grace, irresistibly drawn and kept and preserved in Christ to the end. The good news of the gospel is that um, it's not dependent. We, we can't do anything to make it better, and we can't do anything to, to ruin it, you know, in and of ourselves. If the Lord's been pleased to save us, it's, uh, the gospel is, stands on its own, doesn't it? And this book is, a, is just story after story of the gospel. It really is. The, 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 we, I mentioned earlier my experience in religion, and we used to pride ourselves in, in the uh, theological prowess that we thought we had when we didn't know anything. And um, we were like those Pharisees. The Lord said, you search the Scriptures. And we were diligent to do that. Because you think that your knowledge of the scriptures gives to you eternal life. But you've missed the message of the Bible. You've missed the message of the word of God, for these are they which testify of me. In the volume of the book, it is written to me. <laughs> this book's about Christ. It's about the gospel. It's about the accomplishments of what he's done in order to secure the salvation of his people. Now, there's a very familiar story in 2 Samuel chapter 9 that I know you've heard preached from. I love this story. I love to preach from it. Paul Mahan and I were talking about this the other day down in Florida, and he said, well, if you can't preach from the story of Mephibosheth, you just can't preach. And I said, well, I guess that's true. Uh, I told him I was going to be preaching from this text up here. But uh, every glorious truth of the gospel Every accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ is illustrated and pictured in this story. Election is in this story. Irresistible grace is in this story. Particular redemption is in this story. All of it. Total depravity is certainly in this story. And perseverance the perseverance, we call it sometimes the perseverance of the saints. I like to think of it as the perseverance of the spirit, which is the preservation of the saints. <laughs> and that's in this story, isn't it? 
What a great story. I, I can identify with Mephibosheth, this poor boy that had been crippled in a fall and was unfit because of his condition to serve as king or to stand before the king. He was by nature at enmity with King David. And yet, and yet, Mephibosheth's very name, his very name means annihilator of the idols. I like what the Lord said, what Paul said to the church at Thessalonica when he said, the testimony of your grace, of God's grace in your life has gone all throughout Achaia, how that you have turned to God from your idols. The truth is that we come, in, we come into this world as little idol factories. We really do. We forge in the darkened imagination of our own minds little idols, and there's no difference there's no, you know, we look at ancient, uneducated cultures and we think, well, how could a person, you know, carve a god out of a piece of wood and stand around and worship it? There is absolutely no difference between doing that and fashioning an imaginary god in your mind that's not true to the god who is. And that's what we all do by nature. We all do it. You thought that I was altogether as yourself. We look at ourselves and we fashion a God that's like us. Only one that we can control. We dethrone God and put ourselves on the throne so that we have a God that will worship us. And that's what we all say, well, I've never, had, I've never been an idolater. Well, you've never heard the gospel. I'll just say that. You've never heard the gospel if you've never been an idolater. I say with the Apostle Paul, I was an idolater. I was an injurious man. I did injury to the church of God. I did injury to the grace of God. I did injury to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ through my idolatry. And though, like Mephibosheth, when God saves us, that idol factory is shut down. And we worship the one and only true God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures, nevertheless, <laughs> the, 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 the wheels of that factory still seem to turn, at least to the degree that we're prone to caricature the God who is, and thus the reason that we need to gather together regularly and hear again and again and again from the revelation of God's word who he is, lest we pervert the nature of the true God in our own minds. Isn't that what we're doing? <laughs> Tell me about Christ. Just speak to me what God has said. God's preachers don't stand and say, well, you know, it seems to me. No. No, they stand and say, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. Why? Because they know themselves and they know the people and they know that but by the grace of God we're going to fashion an idol and we're in need of God to cause us to bow before the king and to annihilate those idols. To know God is life eternal. <laughs> to know him 
for who he is. Well, this story of Mephibosheth gives us every glorious truth of how it is that God saves sinners in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How it is that he takes crippled Mephibosheths and fetches them and brings them to the king's table and causes them to put away their idols and to, and to rejoice in their king. Let's read, the, let's read the chapter together. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 9, And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show? You see that word kindness? It's the word mercy. Mercy. Now that's what I need. I need a God to pity me. I need a God to be merciful to me. I need a God to forgive me and to accept me for the sake of another. That I may show the kindness of God unto him. And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. And chapter 4 verse 4 tells us that when the Philistines came in to Israel, that Jonathan's uh, son's maid grabbed up this little boy and tried to flee with him. And in fleeing from the rampage of the Philistines, somehow fell and injured this boy. And he has crippled the rest of his life rest of his life. Now that's, that's, that's who we are. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, in Lodabar. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, of the son of Emil, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David. He fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. <laughs> oh, that I, could, that I could repeat the tenderness and the passion that David spoke Mephibosheth's name in. That the Spirit of God would speak that tenderly to our hearts as he calls us out by name. And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake and restore thee in the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertained to Saul and to his house. <laughs> I've restored everything. How many times we see that theme repeated throughout the scriptures? 
where God restores everything. And that's what he's done in Christ. He's everything our father Adam has lost. Christ, the last Adam, has restored and so much better. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's servant, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, He shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. (laughs) To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Oh, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we, (laughs) Mephibosheths, crippled idolaters, should be called the sons of God? That's what I'm going to make him, my child. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants under Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in the city of peace, Jerusalem. Peace with God, having the peace of God in the person of the Lord Jesus. He dwelt there. He stayed right there. And he did eat continually at the king's table. And don't lose the last phrase. This story ends with, and was lame in both of his feet. (laughs) He remained that way. Unconditional election. Is there any left? of the household of Saul, that I might show kindness or mercy toward them for Jonathan's sake? Now, how did Ziba know where Mephibosheth was? How did Ziba know Mephibosheth was still there? When we read our Bibles and we sometimes find these long passages of genealogy, That is given to us in order to illustrate. The Jews were very meticulous, very particular about making sure that the names of the living were recorded in the books of genealogy. Why? Because everything we see physically in the Old Testament for the Israelites is a picture of the spiritual truth that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Israels who have been circumcised in the heart. In other words, these books of genealogy are just representative of the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And if your name's not in the book, you've got no inheritance. You've got no right. You see, the land of Israel is a picture of our spiritual heavenly land in Christ. And uh, if you weren't recorded in the book, Ziba knew where the descendants of Saul was because Ziba, as a servant of Saul, was responsible for keeping the books. (laughs) He knew exactly who was left. God knows. He knows exactly who is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
And he's going to get the gospel to every single one. Not one of my sheep are going to be lost. <laughs> Not a single one of them. My wife and I recently celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary and we took a cruise um, to the Mediterranean. And I'm standing, you remember in Acts chapter 19 when uh, Demetrius the silversmith started a riot in what the scripture calls the arena? Uh, because of the preaching of the gospel, he was afraid that his livelihood was going to be taken away and the whole city breaks into a riot. That old city of Ephesus is still there. The arena is still there. And uh, back in October, I'm standing in this arena and I'm talking to my wife about, you know, we're talking about the scriptures and what's happened here and just enjoying the moment. And this woman comes up to me and she says, now, what is it that you all believe? And I'm standing right in the arena in Ephesus telling this woman exactly what Paul preached 2,000 years ago. And I just thought, now, isn't that just like the Lord? Now, if this woman is elect, if she belongs to... The Lord can take her from her home in Chicago to Ephesus, Turkey, and pair her up with a man who tells her about Christ. Yeah. The Lord's hand's not short that he cannot save. His ear's not dead. He knows where his children are. And there are no circumstances that will keep him from redeeming every single one of them. Every single one of them. Our God is a God of purpose. It's not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth, but of God who showeth mercy. He's elected a particular people. He's recorded their names in the Lamb's book of life, having predestinated us according to his good pleasure, to the praise of the glory of his grace. He knows where every one of his children are. And this world is not going to come to an end until the last of those whom God has chosen in Christ before the world began, hears the gospel and are brought, fetched, and brought to Christ. We find something of this in this story about particular redemption. David, the scripture is very, very particular about how affectionate, how much... David loved Jonathan. I mean, they were brothers. They were soulmates. They just, they bonded from the beginning. And um, don't you know that when David saw Mephibosheth, he saw, as often is the case, the features of his father in the face of the son. And he looked upon him and he said, Oh, Mephibosheth, <laughs> I see Jonathan. And there we have a picture of what God Almighty does when he looks upon his children. And he sees them in the person of our Jonathan, the Lord Jesus Christ, and accepts us in Christ and loves us for Christ's sake. It's not because of anything we've done. Turn, turn in your Bibles with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. 
It's not our faith. It's not our will. It's not our work. It's completely dependent. <laughs> we were talking about this during the break. How many times that theme is repeated throughout the scripture. Don't put your hand up. Don't, when you build an altar, don't hew those stones with tools. Whatever you sacrifice on that altar won't be acceptable. And what happened to Uzzah when he tried to steady the ark because it was about to fall off the cart, which they were never supposed to put it on anyway. God killed him right there on the spot, didn't he? Why? Because he put his hand, he put his hand to the gospel. You can't make a contribution. <laughs> Whatsoever they did there, he must be the doer of it if it's going to be done right. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36 and look at verse 21. But I had pity for my holy name. which the house of Israel hath profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Now that's us. No, we're, we're just so profane. We're profane in our thoughts. We're profane in our attitudes. We're profane in our words. We're profane in our actions. No, profane stands in contrast to holy. There's only one that's holy. There's only one who has clean hands and a pure heart before God. There's only one who's measured up to that standard of righteousness. The rest of us are profane. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whither you went. And I will sanctify my great name. <laughs> How many times we read in the scriptures, thus saith the Lord. How many times God has put his name in this book? Why has he done that? You know, I used to think that when thus saith the Lord was a threat. God said it, that settles it, you better believe it. Or you're going you're gonna to suffer the wrath and judgment of God for not believing God. Thus saith the Lord. And, and, there, and that's true. That's true. But yeah, that's not. Why has God put his name so many times? You ever bought a house? You guys just bought one. Did you mortgage it? Right. Whatever. If you mortgage a house, you've got about, my wife used to be a realtor. And you've got about 50 pages of contract. You don't just sign it one time at the end of the contract saying, I agree to everything on this. You sign every page, and in a lot of places, you have to initial each paragraph. Why? Because that mortgage holder wants to know that you know what the conditions of that contract are. Your name is on that contract, every paragraph, every page, because you're accountable to fulfill the details of that contract. And when God said, thus saith the Lord, that's the reason his name is in this book so much. He's putting his name on the covenant. <laughs> He's putting his name on every paragraph of the contract. He's saying, I understand the conditions of this contract. I'm going to fulfill them. <laughs> you can trust me. You can believe me. What are you saying to that person you're borrowing the money from? You can trust me. I'm putting my name on it. I'm signing it on every line, every paragraph, every page. My name, my reputation is at stake here. 
Now, sometimes people fail to fulfill their obligations, but God never does. When he puts his name on something, you can be sure that every detail of that contract are going to be fulfilled. That's what the Lord's saying here. Is there anyone I can show mercy toward for Jonathan's sake? For my name's sake? Look, you're there in Ezekiel. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord. I'm going to take my bride. I'm going to parade her as a trophy of my grace before all the universe one day. And all the universe is going to know that I did it. It was my name. It was my glory. It was my good pleasure. It was my purpose. Christ is going to be the one worshipped. He's going to be the one that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Look what he says. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes, I will take away from among the heathen, take you away from among the heathen, and gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> oh, the, the Egyptians said, we'll pursue, we'll take over. We'll capture the Israelites. And God said, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to sanctify. Now, there's the difference, isn't there? It's not our faith in Christ. It is the faith of Christ. I'm going to do it for my name's sake. Why was David so passionate about showing mercy to the descendants of Saul? Because of his love for Jonathan. Is there anyone left of the household of Saul that I might show mercy to Jonathan, that I might show mercy towards him for Jonathan's sake? And the Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw in the previous hour, he restores everything, doesn't he? All that our father Adam lost in the fall is restored. Adam knew something of innocence. We have much more than innocence. We have an imputation of perfect righteousness and holiness before God. Union with Christ. By virtue of what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished, we have more than our father Adam had in terms of just fellowship with God. Adam enjoyed the fruits of the tree of life. We have the very bodily presence of the Lord Jesus Christ as that tree of life. Adam enjoyed the, the, the cool of the garden and the cycle of day and night, and we have the promise of heaven, where there is no moon or nor sun, no darkness, nor death. Perpetual life and light in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the life became the light of man. You know, usually we think of light being necessary for life. But in John chapter 1, it says the Lord Jesus Christ is the life, and the life became the light of man. <laughs> we get light only through the life of Christ. Surely in this story, we see a picture of our depravity. We see a picture of our depravity. 
We have fallen. This matter of imputation, you know about this. I know you've been, you've, you've been taught so well. And, and, but you know there's three imputations in the scriptures, don't you? There's the imputation of our fallen nature that we receive from our father Adam. When Adam died, we died in him. He's the federal head of the human race, and we are guilty before God in our father Adam. We're born into this world that way. There's the imputation of our guilt and sin placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And then there's the imputation of the righteousness of Christ charged to the account of God's people, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Three imputations spoken of in the scriptures. In order for us to enjoy the last two, we've got to own up to the first one. Yep, Mephibosheth, that crippled idolater. That's how I came into this world. If God doesn't have mercy upon me, if he doesn't fetch me and save me and do it for Christ's sake, I've got no hope of salvation. Twice in this chapter, excuse me, twice in this chapter, the place where Mephibosheth was is mentioned. You see it in verse 4 and in verse 5. Where is he? Where is he? I want to know exactly where he is. Well, he's in Mature. Now, Mature translated means sold. Sold. And that's where we are. Sold into the slavery of sin. Sold into our inability to believe. Sold as, 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 as the Israelites were in bondage to the taskmasters of Egypt. So the slave owners, what, remember what would happen? That every time the Israelites would come close to meeting their quota, the, the Egyptians would take away their straw and raise the quota. <laughs> they could never measure up to the requirements of the law. And there we are. There we are. Never able to satisfy what God, why? Because we're sold, we're slaves, we're held captive, we're in bondage. We're prisoners. We're, we're, we're those captivity that the Lord came to bring, to, to bring captive. And notice the next word. Where is Machir? It's in the house of Lodabar. Lodabar. Or Amil. It's in, it's in Amil. My kinsman is God. <laughs> now, how can we think of that without thinking of poor Ruth, that Moabitist, coming back from Moab with Naomi after having lost everything, gleaning in the field, and just so happened upon Boaz's track of land. <laughs> and she comes home and where you been today, Ruth? Well, I've been in a field of a man by the name of Boaz. <laughs> and Ruth said, oh, Boaz, he's our kinsman redeemer. He's the one able to buy us 
and to provide for us. Go back to that field tomorrow. <laughs> Seek his mercy. The house of Emil. God is my kinsman. You and I are in need because of our sold condition into the poverty and slavery of sin. We're in need of a kinsman. We're in need of a Boaz. We're in need of a redeemer. And then where is he? Load to bar. Load to bar. Not a pasture. Not a pasture. Sold with the hope of having God as his kinsman, but he's living in a place where there's no pasture, a dry and thirsty land, feasting off of the husk that the swine do eat. And unless God sends manna from heaven and brings water out of rock, they'll die in that wilderness. <laughs> That's where we are. That's where Mephibosheth was. That's where you and I are. The things of this world unable to satisfy. And what does Mephibosheth say? When, 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 when David sees him and says, Oh, Mephibosheth, <laughs> I've redeemed you. What does Mephibosheth say? What would thou hast to do with such a dead dog as I? Now you know that dogs in the Bible are not are not domesticated pets that men have in their laps. These are, these are mangy, fierce pack dogs, dirty animals. And they're used all throughout the scripture. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 66, the Lord, in rebuking the children of Israel, says, you bring a, a, a lamb to me, but you might as well cut off a dog's head. And uh, in, in, even in the New Testament, when the Lord warns the church against the false prophets, what's he call them? He calls them dogs, doesn't he? And when Mephibosheth says he identifies himself as a dog, he's acknowledging his unworthiness before God. He's un acknowledging his filth before God. Much like that Syrophoenician woman. Oh, the Lord... Here comes a woman before the Lord with a child that's possessed with a demon. I mean, there's nothing, no greater need a parent feels than the need of their child and begs Christ for mercy, and the Lord ignores her. He ignores her. And you know that's often the case. That's often the case. The Lord will withdraw the awareness of his presence in order to, in order to prove the sincerity of our own hearts the desire of our hearts for him. We, 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 we you know, we knock, keep knocking, keep asking, keep coming. <laughs> uh, with, with perseverance, don't, don't quit. And, and she didn't, did she? Did she? And then, the, and then the disciples embarrassed her. Lord, tell her to go away. She's embarrassing us. And she continued to persist, didn't she? With importunity. Isn't that what the scripture says? That we're to pray with importunity? And you know the root of that is just simply the word important. How important is the salvation of your soul? How important it is for God to be merciful toward you? And so she keeps coming. And then the Lord says the most degrading thing to her in public. He says to her, it's not fit to give the children's bread to dogs. 
and most would be like Goliath. At that point, most would be like Goliath, who says, what am I, a dog that you would come against me with staves and stones? What is this boy coming against me? (laughs) No, she doesn't say that, does she? She says, truth, Lord. Truth, Lord. Oh, but would you just scrape a few crumbs off the table for this poor dog? Would you just satisfy me with a little bit of bread? Would you show me a little bit of mercy? Lord, if you'd just show me a little bit of mercy, that'd that'd be enough. And there's there's a picture. You know, most people are not going most people would say, well, I, well, if that's the way you feel about it, I'm just I'll go somewhere else. But when God's pleased to make us to be sinners, we say with our brother Mephibosheth and our sister, the Syrophoenician woman, truth, Lord. What would you have to do with a dog such as I? We talk about sovereign election and sovereign redemption and, and, and particular redemption and, and how the atoning work of Christ is limited only to the people of God. And what's the world say? What does the religious world in particular say? What do they say? You know what they say. You've heard them say it. That's not fair. Why wouldn't God save everybody? Why do they talk like that? Because of the idol factory they've got going on in their own mind, they fashioned a God who's like themselves, and they think that God is obligated to save everybody. At least anybody that would show an interest. What do God's people say? With sincerity... It amazes me that a God like the one who is would save anybody. And I'm most particularly astounded that he would show mercy toward a dead dog like me. God's people truly do. I love being among God's people. <laughs> you know, they're so pretentious among people in the church, in, in religion, aren't they? Men in religion are just pretentious. Everybody pretending to be something they're not. Everybody acting like they're better than one another. Everybody competing with one another to see who's holier. Not among God's people. God's people truly esteem one another more highly than themselves. They look around and I'm looking at you right now and I genuinely believe in my heart there's not a person in this room that is in more need of grace than me. I believe that. I I can say with, with my brother Paul, I'm the chief of all sinners. I need mercy Nobody's been given more light. Nobody's been given more opportunities. Nobody's been blessed with more mercy and remained as unbelieving as I am. Oh, God, would you have mercy upon me? The sinner. The sinner. And I know if you know Christ, you feel the same way. (laughs) Dead dogs. Lord, why would you have mercy upon me? Now, there's a picture of depravity, isn't there? In nature, sold into sin, having a kinsman redeemer, and yet living in a place where there's no pasture, there's no bread, 
And yet God has promised to prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. <laughs> you know that's happening right now. I, I pray it's happening for you right now. That, that there is bread being served right now to you in the presence of your worst enemy. You know who that is, don't you? You know that your, your old man is your worst enemy. You are your own worst enemy. I'm my own worst enemy. We, uh, we go back to, we, we act like our father Adam a lot, don't we? We like to point our finger at other people and, and accuse other people and accuse the circumstances and, and situations. But in truth, we know that the biggest problem we have is right within ourselves. You know, I, I really like where I live. I, I, you know, I can go to the ocean anytime. I like Florida. I really do. But you know, we have, I forgot, a couple million people moving to Florida every year. And about 1.9 million of them moving out. Our, our net increase of population is very small compared to the number of people that come to Florida. You know why that is? People come to Florida on vacation. And they go to Disney and they go to the beach and they have all these wonderful experiences and they get back home and they say, well, wouldn't it be great to live in Florida? We're just miserable here, we're wherever they are from. I'm not saying they're from around here, but they're, you know, where, and, and they, they think we'll just go. And then what happens when they get to Florida after they've been there just a little while, they realize they brought the problems with them. And the situation in Florida is not any different than it was anywhere else. We are our own worst enemy. <laughs> and the Lord said, I'll prepare a table before them in the presence of their enemies. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad that the Lord is merciful and patient to feed us the bread of life, even in spite. Go fetch him. Go fetch him. You know, this word fetch is used several times in the word of God. And I want to tell you real quickly how it's interpreted in many other places where the original word that's translated fetched in our text is translated in other places. Lay hold of, take him by the hand, seize, acquire, and snatch. <laughs> Don't you know Mephibosheth was scared to death? You know, all the descendants of the fallen king were to be annihilated lest there be a threat to the new king's sovereignty. Come on, Mephibosheth. We know where you're at. We're taking you back to David. Go fetch him. Go snatch him. Go take him by the hand. Bring him to me. It wasn't until Mephibosheth heard David's voice and the tenderness of his speaking his name and saw the table set before him that that fear went away. Mephibosheth was, drawn, was brought kicking and screaming. <laughs> it's called irresistible grace. No man can come to the Father lest my, come to me lest my Father which sent me draw him. Draw him. You remember over there in James when the scripture speaks of, of how they were giving um, deference to the rich man in the church? And the Lord rebukes them for that. And James says to them, don't you know it's the rich that drag you before the courts? 
That word drag and the word the Lord Jesus Christ used when he said, no man can come unto me unless the Father which sent me draw him, it's the same word. Same word. And that really is how we come, isn't it? Fearful? What? When we first begin to hear the gospel, if what you're saying is true, if what you're saying is true, I'm lost. If what you're saying is true, all the years that I've spent in religion are for naught. If what you're saying is true, I, what's, it gonna, what's gonna happen to me? What's gonna happen to me? Until the Lord calls us by name and shows us that set table and then takes our crippled feet and puts them under the tablecloth. <laughs> and we sit at his table continually, satisfied, satisfied with him. You know, Mephibosheth's mentioned again in the scriptures. When Absalom, David's son, overthrows David and forces him to leave Jerusalem, and David flees for his life and ha stays in the, in, in the cave and all the horrible things that happened during that time, Finally, the Lord restores David back to his rightful place. And when David's coming back into Jerusalem, the scripture says Mephibosheth meets him. And the entire time David was gone, which was months, the scripture says David Mephibosheth didn't cut his nails, he didn't cut his hair, he didn't wash. He remained in grief and in seclusion the whole time the king was gone. And David sees Mephibosheth, and David says to Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, why didn't you go with me? And you know what Mephibosheth says? He says, my servant Ziba deceived me. He told me he was going to saddle an ass and come get me, and he never came and got me. You know what that tells me? Mephibosheth had been sitting at the king's table with his feet hung on, hid under the tablecloth, crippled to the end, but he was still prone to be deceived. God's people can certainly be deceived by sin. We're deceived all the time, aren't we? The deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness of this world are always captivating our attention, aren't they? And David says to Mephibosheth, well, I already talked to Ziba and I've already divided up the land between you and Ziba. You know what Mephibosheth said? Let him have it all. My Lord, the king has returned unto me his house and I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied that you're back in your rightful place. And that though I've been deceived and though I'm still crippled, I'm going to eat continually at your table perseverance of the Spirit of God and preservation of the saints. <laughs> oh, I'm so thankful for that. If the Lord if the Lord turned his back on me as often as I turned my back on him, whew, but he won't. His word will accomplish that for which it's sent, will not return void. And the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not return back to the, his rightful place at the right hand of the majesty on high. Boyd, he went back with the names of those for whom he lived and died and presents us faultless in himself before the throne of God. 
all us crippled Mephibosheths. <laughs> it's a gospel story, isn't it? It's a story of salvation. God's given it to us in order to encourage our hearts. I hope it, I hope it'll be to that for us today. Jim.